Welcome to Tied to the Tracks. My name is Barb Abney. I am a DJ and voice actor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm Augustus Watkins. I'm a musician and a record label owner in Los Angeles. And every week we get together and we talk about a record that we just stand, right? Mm-hmm. That's how you say it? We stand? I stand this album. <laughs> and we brought in a friend this week we're really excited about. Andrea Swenson, hello. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Andrea Swenson is, where do, where do we begin? Uh, a writer, a DJ, a voice, a friend, an ally, um, probably the person to talk about this record with, or any oh Prince boy. record for that matter. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So this week we're doing Prince Sign of the Times, as recommended by Andrea herself. Why this one, Andrea? I have been so deep on this album for the last year. Mm -hmm. I worked on a podcast about it. um, That was a collaboration with the Prince Estate. And I also wrote some of the liner notes for the big (gasps) deluxe reissue. And so I've just been like down this huge rabbit hole (laughs) sign of the times era and not just the record, but also like the whole era around it, what Prince Mm -hmm. was doing, um, all the things that he was creating in this period. It was an incredibly prolific period. Mm -hmm. And, the deluxe edition of the album has two full albums of vault material that were just released that really show, you know, how much he was creating literally every day in this era. So it's just like, it's just in my brain. And when you asked an album, I was like, I mean, I, I just have to talk about sign of the times. I, I have so many nerd facts about it that um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it'll be interesting or fun to talk about. It's so amazing because your relationship with the Prince estate began when you went to review a Prince show. Yeah. Was it at the Dakota? It was. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, or here in town in the Twin Cities. It was uh, such a memorable night for so many reasons. It was in January and it was really cold. And I went to the Dakota and they said um, there was not going to be any photography or even any cell phones allowed in the space, hmm. which became very common for Prince shows in mm-hmm. his later years. And so I was reviewing it and I was taking all these notes and I was like, gosh, I wish someone could just see what it looks like because he had this like 12 piece band, the NPG with all these horns and they were just overflowing on the tiny Dakota stage and basically like playing in the audience and marching around the room (laughs) and stuff. So I did this little drawing in my notebook and it was like, I mean, I'm not an artist and it was like a total doodle basically, but I put it with my review the next morning. Um, as a kind of tongue in cheek, like here's Prince, you know, live at right. the Dakota with his band and here's what it looked like. And I drew the little candles on stage and everything. <laughs> and then uh, that day I got an email from his manager saying that Prince wanted to have my drawing and could I please send a copy or bring it to the Dakota that night? Cause he was going to be playing again. And it started this whole relationship of um, being invited to cover his events being invited out to Paisley Park to cover what he was doing out there and then getting to meet him. And it continued up until he passed away. Um, it was a just kind of a funny, beautiful, fleeting little, I don't even know what you call it, relationship, I guess, yeah. professional relationship that we had yeah. in a, un, you know, a appreciation. So Andrea, sometimes I see, I see Questlove I always talked about as like a Prince expert or a Prince historian. And I'm like, I know one of those. I don't want to put you on the spot, but are you, are you a Prince expert? Are you a Prince historian? Mm. I 
I like the word researcher because it's active. I feel like I'm always learning more. So I'm always wanting to talk to more people that knew him and worked with him and always looking for new facts and information. And I I feel very open-ended about it. I, I feel like expert is like 10 levels above where I feel comfortable describing myself, but I'm very curious and passionate about learning more about Prince. So this album, like not only did you choose a Prince record, which we knew was going to be coming. And I, you know, when I reached out, I'm like, this is where we're going to get purple. But you chose a double record. Of course. (laughs) Right out of the gate. What will be the official pilot is a double album. So So, Barb, last week we were recording a test episode and you and I both agreed that an artist cannot come out of the gate with a double album. Do you recall this? This wasn't out of the gate, (laughs) not out of the gate. This was his like ninth album. Yeah. But we are here coming out of the gate. Oh, here we are. Podcasts with a double album. And so um, I don't know if that makes us uh, very brave or hypocrites, (laughs) but, uh, but but very brave hypocrites. Did you know it was supposed to be a triple album? Oh my God. Of course it was. (laughs) No, seriously. (laughs) Yeah, the original crystal ball. Uh, that's what it was supposed to be back in 86. And Prince actually handed in all three discs to the label. And it was the first time in his career that they rejected it. Wow. Oh. Yeah, oh. they said it's too much. I actually got a chance to talk to, um, it was really incredible that he was willing to talk to me, Lenny Warrenker, uh, who was the former uh, yeah, president and before that A&R rep for Warner Brothers and was one of the main people that Prince worked with and had a relationship with at the label. And he was the one that they made call Prince in the studio and tell him, we can't put this out. It's too long and it's too busy. It's just not cohesive. And he said that the conversation was very short. (laughs) (laughs) Prince answered the phone and said, I hear you don't like my album. And then... Um, Uh Lenny had to explain to him, basically said, you know, even the best writers need editors. And in this Mm. case, I'm not going to edit you. You are talented enough that you need to edit yourself. But this is too long and you need to revisit it and it needs to be shorter. So Prince was able to edit it down to the two full albums and they released it. And I don't know if it would have been as successful as it was if it had been allowed to come out as crystal ball because it really was um, wandering. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it wanders as it is though. Yes. I mean, it's, it's pretty uh, uh, scattershot. That's kind of the thing I like about it though, because <laughs> I feel like Prince throughout his career was just so resistant to being pigeonholed and didn't mm. want to be described as any one particular genre. And that had, racial implications too with the way that the music industry segregates out black artists but this is just such a showcase of what he can do and all of the different ideas that he was having at this time and the different styles that he was attracted to and all of his different influences and I just feel like it's such a prince record in that way that he Mm. just can't be contained (laughs) and this is him just showing you know showing off kind of of all the different songwriting that he wanted to do. Now, I've seen a lot of critics that said that this is his best work because it encompasses everything. It's a little taste of everything. I will say that one of my least favorite Prince songs of all time is on this album. Ooh. And and to say the name of it, every you guys are going to like, you're going to cringe <laughs> when I say it because everybody loves it. And I would love it. 
when he goes into that little alien voice, I can handle his falsetto, but that weird little robotic alien voice mm-hmm. I can't deal anymore. So Housequake is my least oh, favorite. Oh, Shut up already. Damn. I'm shocked. I thought you were going to say starfish and coffee or something. Uh, Some people get, think that's just a little too bubbly, but whoa. Housequake. Yeah, <laughs> Housequake. It just rubs me the wrong way. It's like, oh, no, it's the alien voice again. Yeah, I don't like this part. I don't like this part. That's like, Camille. That's yeah, his alter ego. <laughs> not feeling it. I'm like, it just sounds alien to me. I can't, I can't handle when he does that. And it's like, uh, but there's also, I mean, this side one track one is one of the strongest side one track ones in the whole world. Agreed. Yeah, it's a sign of the times. This is Prince being rather worldly to me. I mean, he's really concerned with this is a, a, a litany of Reagan era hand wringing, war, and drugs, and AIDS, and poverty, and all of it. Is Prince a man of the world? I mean, he strikes me as pretty like enclosed, right? Pretty pretty focused on his craft. Um, but then occasionally he comes along with a song about Ronald Reagan and. What's your sense, Andrea, of how, you know, engaged with current events he is? I have a story um, that I think will illustrate that. So two things. First, Prince had been spending a lot of time in France right before this record creation period because he was working on his film Under the Cherry Moon, Mm. which tanked. (laughs) But Mm. I think um, he was really opening himself up in a new way to European culture, European audiences, different ways of thinking about the world. And then he came home and went to Los Angeles to his favorite studio, Sunset Sound, and recorded a lot of the material on this record. And when he was in L.A., his fiance at the time, Susanna Melfoyne, told me that they were hit with an earthquake. And he had just gotten to L.A. and he was about to hole up in the studio and start recording some of these like super iconic songs on this record. And she said he hated earthquakes. He felt totally shaken and freaked out and he wanted to get out of there and they were going to fly back out in the morning. And before they went to the airport, he sat down at the table in their hotel room and read the newspaper. And it was all these headlines about AIDS and about the Star Wars missile crisis and about Reagan. And he had this way of looking at all of these news items. And he also calls out a a gang that was actually making headlines back in Minneapolis, the disciples. They were, some of their members were on trial in a murder trial in Minneapolis. So every couple of days, the Star Tribune was reporting about that. So he was definitely aware of these current events, but had this way of synthesizing them in a really stark, concise, like moody, Mm -hmm. (laughs) understated way where you're just getting these little hints of each Thing, and then it all comes together to create this mood. Yeah. And it's this very unsettled mood. And Susanna, his fiance, said that's because of the earthquake and the mindset that he was in at that time. And that's also the same couple day period that he recorded The Cross, which is oh. one of the most absolutely dramatic, um, raw songs on the record. And ever since she told me that, I just can't stop thinking about <laughs> Prince being in an earthquake and hating that moment of losing control, you know, Mm. and realizing that there's something that could happen to him that he can't do anything about and then taking that out in his songs. So I just, I love that story. And I I think it shows he was very sensitive 
and he was really open to the world. Yeah. Well, your first earthquake is, uh, I think everyone remembers that. That's an intense moment. That's amazing. And, and this is I've really- never been in one. I can't. Oh. I mean, really? I've, I've been in like tornado weather, which is maybe a little similar where you're like, ooh, am I going to get sucked up? <laughs> but a tornado you see coming, an earthquake. <laughs> right. I mean, right. I, I may be having one right now. I mean, it's 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 weird. I, I will never forget my first earthquake. That's I mean, it was just a little shake, but it was it was weird. Yeah, I, I get that. that. That leaves you unsettled. I'm sitting over here, guys. I like to hear these stories. I'm I am a huge Prince fan. And so like hearing these things and learning these things, I have cried so many tears for this person mm. that I only met one time. Like as if, you know, I, I just had such a relationship in my mind with this person, you know, like with the lyrics and like what the music meant to me. And I, I was numb when David Bowie died. I was stricken, but when Prince died, I was just, abs- I did not know what to do with myself. Like all I could do was, you know, play Prince music for the last hour I was on the air and then walk across the street to first Avenue and just sit there mm-hmm. until, you know, watch people coming over and you went out to, you went out Paisley. to Paisley, didn't you? Yeah, before it was even confirmed, because we got a tip through the NPR newsroom that actually it was like all true, but it was so um, unbelievable when it came in that mm. we were like, this this can't be true. So Ambulances um, th- at Prince's house. No, yeah. it yeah. doesn't mean anything. They sent me out there. Well, I mean, they didn't have to send me. I just like got in my car. <laughs> I actually right. was so panicked and like terrified of it being true. I remember I um, I'd had a laptop. And I shoved it in my bag and I was like swinging my bag around to get in my car and it flew across my driveway oh, and shattered. No. <laughs> and you I was just care. like so distraught. And then I was like, ah, and I just put it back in my bag and drove out to Paisley. And I think my hair was still wet from like getting out of the shower. I like literally ran out of the house and I ended up being outside that building for like maybe 10 hours because um, as soon as I was able to confirm it with Bobby Z, I called into the station and reported that he had died and then my phone didn't stop ringing until like six o'clock that night and I still don't know how they all got my phone number but it was like hello this is the BBC hello this is like Irish Mm. public radio this is Australia this is whatever and I just kept talking (laughs) and my friend Kyle who you know Barb um, he came out and sat next to me with a battery pack and just plugged my phone in and put like he brought this like cucumber and hummus thing and we just sat in the grass mm. and he just like kept my phone charged and then hugged me between each phone call. And then I just kept doing it and it was so overwhelming. But then, um, so I watched, you know, the fence become full of all right. of these things. And then I went downtown and then that was like a completely different vibe because yeah. Paisley Park was very somber. Like there, yeah. there was so many people there at certain points, but it was so quiet and it was just so somber. And then when I got downtown, there were like Shannon Blowtorch was DJing and people were laughing and screaming and singing along. And it was like this huge party yeah. in this way that felt so cathartic. And yeah. it just like, oh my gosh, the experience of both of those extremes in that day was just so helpful to me. And I remember yeah. getting down to first Ave and being like, how am I even going to get into the crowd to see what's going on? Right. And they let me go through, I think into the entry and come out. So I basically like smooshed myself <laughs> into this like packed crowd and 
all of a sudden I realized like everyone around me were, were people I knew because that mm-hmm. just happens in Minneapolis. And right. I remember when um, the band was playing Purple Rain and Chastity Brown was singing it. Mm. And there was something about the combination of like that whole day catching up with me and then just Chastity's voice and hearing her sing it. I just completely fell apart. And I realized that the crowd was so packed in that I, they were like physically holding me up. Oh my God. And <laughs> no, it's, it's such a, I've been thinking about this a lot because it's like five year anniversary now, but right. um, I just remember thinking like, you can feel it in the air that the city loved him so much. And I, the sky was actually purple. I, yeah. I'll never forget that. Yeah. There were people running everywhere. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I hope he felt that, you know, like he had to have felt that it was like a citywide send off. Um, It was so beautiful and so sad, obviously, but also just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the the gates or the fence out at Paisley was covered for like six more months. Right. People were out there. And every time I took my. My friend Matt came in from Austin. I drove him out there and we just sat there and cried. I brought my mom out to see it because, you know, she was cool and she has thanked me so many times for taking her out, you know, to see that. Yeah. And it's, I, I, I think he knows, you know, I think that he knows everybody was just feeling it and feeling the loss, you know, the one thing, the one magical thing about walking into First Avenue and saying, he could be here tonight. Yes. Mm. He could be here. And not <laughs> never being able to say that again, you know, it's just that's I think one of the big biggest losses in my time in this town is mm. out there. The 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 rawness, the emotion down at Paisley versus the party. I was I played the entry that weekend at um oh. um there was a purple heart-shaped balloon down in the basement. And I I was like, okay, well, this is mine forever. That's my oh. That's my piece of that. That was, that was coming home with me. That was beautiful. And that those two moods, I think really express what Prince a lot was about. I mean, he was serious and he was so sensitive and he was so gentle and beautiful, but also he wanted us to play. He wanted us to party. He wanted us to have fun. It was important. It seems that the party was on around him and that, that people were going to experience some kind of joy through him. Yeah. He, he wanted us to be entertained. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he did, <laughs> and to yeah. celebrate even when things feel dark. I right. think that's that's kind of a just to go back to the record for a second. Yes, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I got off on a huge tangent, but um, I, I I remember talking to Susan Rogers, his engineer, um, for you know so many of the iconic things he did in the '80s, but on Sign of the Times, his main engineer, and she said that there's so many songs on this record that feel like almost so joyful that it's like unsettling. And I really believe that's from the gospel roots in his music. It's like you're testifying, you're witnessing, and you're Mm -hmm. creating joy as a way to, you know, deal with the, these heavier things that he's also addressing on this record. So she was saying, uh, Susan Rogers, that it feels dissonant to her to go from something like Sign of the Times to Play in the Sunshine oh, yeah. to Housequake, you know, where it yeah. feels very, like, almost like too lighthearted to fit. But yeah. it's actually all part of who he was and what he wanted to express, which is like, yes, things are dark. Yes, there's work to do. 
but we also have to experience this joy together as a way yep. to like persevere as as people. Yeah, um, I, and I had never call, really thought of it that way before. Calling you out, he's he's calling you play, play, play. <laughs> I mean, it's, he's commanding you to play, and then he's quite pissed up at you at, at Housequake. You know, <laughs> shut up already. <laughs> I mean, if you don't if you don't understand it by track three, like he's done with you. And, Damn. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's uh, that I think that one, two, three punch. That you know, that's like you know, left, right uppercut, like, you know, we're going to feel some things, but he wants yeah. you to have some fun. Absolutely. And he also wants you to get r- real naked. close and personal, real <laughs> naked. <He> wants- <laughs> feel sexy. Maybe take yeah. a bath. Um- <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and be a real man um <laughs> so ballad of dorothy parker so this is your classic boy meets girl girl asks boy to take a bath boy leaves his pants on in the bath story everybody's been telling this story since the beginning of time what, what's the moral here what's the what's what are we taking away from this Oh, I've heard so many theories about this song. So a little personal context. So I mentioned he's engaged at this time um, to Susanna Melvoin, who is the twin sister of Wendy Melvoin, um, guitarist for the revolution. And Prince and Susanna had been together off and on for a few years, but this was the era where they became engaged. So Ballad of Dorothy Parker, he wrote in um, March of 86, and it was the first thing he recorded in his home studio in the house that he and Susanna moved into together to start their life together. And she actually like designed the whole house, picked out all the interior decorating, helped build this home studio for him. And I, I believe, and I, there's been some convincing theories about this, that this is a song about meeting a beautiful woman and trying not to cheat on your fiance, keeping your pants on, <laughs> mm. but letting this fian- or letting this fantasy play out in your mind as a way to still have that kind of, sexual freedom even though he was trying to be monogamous and that was a huge theme in his life well many eras of his life but especially in the 80s of wanting to commit to a person but not being able to be monogamous so I think that's maybe what's going on at the core of this but it's also one of those really um, dreamy kind of songs that feels like it got totally written in his subconscious while he was still dreaming And so there's this kind of otherworldly quality to it, too. And the recording quality is weird because the board hadn't even been fully set up in his home studio. And Susan Rogers was there trying to hurry and plug everything in the right way, but he was ready to record. So she said that the high end of the board actually wasn't even working. So that's why it also has this kind of muddy, kind of cloudy sound to it. Mm -hmm. But he ended up really liking that for this particular song. I like that song and I glommed onto that song really hard because the album came out, the albums album. Yeah. Came out right as I was graduating high school and, you know, I wasn't in Minneapolis. So I was in Ohio and on Ohio time, a Prince record that isn't yet on the chart doesn't exist. So it took almost a year for me to hear any of it. And Mm. by that time I was a waitress and I'm like, (laughs) Oh, this is cool. This is this is a song about a waitress. And I that was the song I glommed on to because it was like, I like Sheena Easton. That was fine. And I really like Sign of the Times, but Dorothy Ballad of Dorothy Parker. I'm like, oh my, she's okay. I I I like this girl. All right. Well, you know, 
you can still be a good man and we can still just take a bath together. It's cool. Don't worry yeah. about it. I like that. And I, um, I, I was DJing at a, a brewery and I played this into Atmosphere's Waitress. Oh, well done. <laughs> well done. And somebody walked up to me and they're like, I see what you did there. Uh-huh. Like, Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> like <laughs> One polite golf clap for Barb Abney on that one. <laughs> Ballad of Dorothy Parker is is a song about sexual politics, but it takes until it till until we get. I mean, we're pretty deep into a Prince record before we get a song that's really about banging. Wow! If this is like okay, so he says I could be guilty for my honesty, and so here we go. Like, I mean. This is the, this song is like what being horny feels like to me, man. Like, I mean, this is, I'm sorry, y'all, episode one, but like, this is a steady build with no release. You know, I mean, this whole thing is just, I mean, this is, this is, this is intense. Like, I don't even want to listen to this song, like, because it's, it's so much. It's throbbing. It's, uh, yes. it's one of those. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, this is a song that I feel like I, there's just so many songs on this record that I, it didn't really sink in until this last year when I was spending so much time revisiting Sign of the Times of how good the beat is on this song uh, and how yes. it's so heavy and it's so it feels kind of futuristic to me like it feels yep. like something that would be released now which you can say about a lot of the stuff on this record but it, it's it's a I don't sleep on it <laughs> no not at all not at all this is yeah. And I think I was saving this for later, but I feel like Trent Reznor heard this record and then mm. used this as the blueprint and specifically it and hot thing. This was the oh. blueprint for pretty hate machine, drum I machines and forbidden sexual affairs. And then just like swap gospel with heroin. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then what starfish and coffee? Again, way, way over to the other side of the dial. Now we're like pure um, song that Prince will play on the Muppets, you know, like just childlike (laughs) whimsy and joy and um, like a beautiful children's book come to life. Andrea, does, um, does... Prince and Barb. Actually, I want to hear this from both of you. Does Prince ordering side of ham does that work for you? Are you are you are you sold on this? Well, he he didn't go vegan till the late nineties, so he was <laughs> he was he was ordering sides of ham in the yeah. 80s. <laughs> yeah. There was, I mean, there was literally like nothing that he could do wrong, with the exception of housequake, in my mind. <laughs> um, I just I just like I couldn't handle it, and there were like there was nothing before it that in my mind that set me up for it, but I didn't know, like I came to Prince with Purple Rain and then I had to work backwards. I worked backwards to 1999 and then Controversy. Then it was Around the World. And then I came to this. So I had some things out of order from everybody else. Gus, you're lucky because all of those records were released before you were born. Yeah, yeah, I was I was born for this. I was, I was um, but not, I wasn't listening to Prince at age two, so this is true. Uh, this is all present past for me. The main thrust of Prince's career. I listened to a lot of radio growing up, and Prince was 
all over the radio, yeah. but I had no sense of his um, timeline or his mm-hmm. discography. I just knew you're liable to hear Prince song. You were liable to like it. And it could be pretty, um, pretty diverse in terms of its tone and style. But I never heard Starfish and Coffee on the radio. And, <laughs> no, uh, no. and I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I have played that on the radio. Have you? Yeah. How'd that go? I mean, <laughs> I, I used to program a children's channel at the oh, other Oh, yeah. Fit perfectly. Fit better like, than Slow Love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are right there, sir. That's, that's for sure. I mean, again, so we, we go from it to Starfish and Coffee to Slow Love, which is a, a lovely 6-8 shuffle about laying down your lady. <laughs> yes, it is. I think Prince enjoyed contrasting mm. kind of, you know, it's been written a lot about him, the contrast of the sacred and the profane, but also the innocent and the dirty. You know, it's I think I think he enjoyed <laughs> putting those together in a way to surprise people. And um, one thing that was interesting going through the vault tracks that came out in this period um there's in the liner notes uh this archivist named Dwayne Tudal wrote all of the date information of like when each thing was recorded where and it's fascinating to be able to look at his life broken down in that way but he would on the same day record a song that was absolutely filthy and then record like one of his most religious songs Mm. and it's, it's so interesting his engineer susan rogers again said that she felt like it was almost like he was apologizing oh. <laughs> to god oh. first before what he said you know like okay now i'm going to redevote myself to the <laughs> to my higher power okay. um, now that i got that out of my system but it, I, I think it's it shows up again and again in his work that he was constantly battling these like two sides of his his mind mm-hmm. so maybe it's like um as we were growing up in perhaps masturbation and how you're like, Oh, I feel so dirty. I'm so ashamed of myself. God, I'll never do it again. I swear. And then, Oh, you do it again. And (laughs) maybe this, you know, it's like that with him. Like I was not going to record another dirty song and I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Oh shit. (laughs) Darling Nikki, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I could see that because he was, I mean, songs were kind of reflexive to him. Right. I mean, he wasn't really, he wasn't so good with his words. Um, he was much of a communicator, except on this grand scale as a songwriter and a performer and an entertainer. Um, he didn't necessarily have a lot of skills and tools in his daily non-musical life to kind of work these things out. Right. Yep. That's consistent with everything I've ever been <laughs> told by people that knew him. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, yeah, he did struggle, especially to communicate emotionally in day to day conversation. So Susanna and others who have been in romantic relationships with him have said that they often learned what was going on in their relationship through his songs that he would Mm. play for them. That was the way he could express himself to them. And he also talked about his songs as if they were almost like lodged in his brain and needed to be extracted. Like um, almost like he felt haunted by it at times in the way that he talks about Mm. it in some interviews later on in his life. And he worked really quickly. He had to get these songs out. You would, you were betraying him if you made him wait too long before you could turn the reel on. Right. I mean, he was, he needed, he needed you to do this. And I think that really comes out. One of the things I hear as a, as a musician and like my producer side is a lot of these songs are pretty raw sonically compared to what was being done sonically at the time. 
Um, I was just watching something with um, Peggy McCreary, who was his main engineer at Sunset. And oh, I she, love Peggy. Do you know her? Do you like you guys hang out? We don't hang out, but I've okay. interviewed her a couple times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish you know I could hang out with Peggy McCreary. <laughs> me too. Call so me. You hang out. Yeah. I love that. Call when when you come out here. You meet Peggy. We'll go. We'll go get mimosas. Uh, um, yes. She talked about how he could hear you changing um, settings on the board. And so she couldn't even really engineer things. She wasn't even allowed to really be an engineer. She had to set up mics and just like sit quietly and let the man work. Yeah. Susan Rogers had described it to me as um, she really felt like through the process of working with him that she came to understand that it really is about the song more than the recording Mm -hmm. that he valued the creation of the song, the execution of the idea way more than whether or not everything was like dialed in perfectly or this microphone was placed. Like he just didn't have time for that kind of stuff. And it's interesting too. I talked to another engineer that worked with him much later on, like in the last decade of his life. And he said that he feels like Prince, even though he would occasionally work in these big studios, like Sunset Sound, he, for the most part, was like a bedroom recording artist. Like the way he approached his work was that he needed things to be at his fingertips because he was just constantly churning out ideas and that he was totally comfortable if he had to just producing himself and often did just produce himself or engineer himself because it was more important to get the idea down than it was to have it all these like bells and whistles around it, I guess. Yeah. I wonder sometimes what Prince with a laptop, you know, 30 years later uh, would have been like, and I was kind of wonder what he would have done in a on garage band. Wow. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, I've never seen him with a, a razor, like cutting tape. Have you seen photos of this? I know that he did it. And I know that he made other people do it oh. for him. Sheila E had a bunch of stories about Prince would leave her in the studio and basically say, edit this together or fix this. And she said, pop life. She has this vivid memory of sitting with a razor blade and cutting all the tape and taping it up in the studio and redoing it. And he would just leave her with it and then come back oh. and make sure she did a good job. <laughs> I found a white china marker the other day in a box I was going through. My daughter is like, what is that for? And I'm like, it's for cutting tape. Like <laughs> I, I loved that kind of production. Like I loved it because it was literally in your own fingers. I mean, it's so much easier now. I get it. It's, you know, highlight, cut and paste, edit. But you were literally making it mm, with right. your own hands. And it was so organic. That makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he, you know, he preferred that even in later years because he got the tape machine up and running again in Studio B at Paisley Park and was using it to record Third Eye Girl, one of his last bands. And uh, they were using the same console, same tape Mm -hmm. player that that he actually broke in recording Sign of the Times and he Mm -hmm. called it his Sign of the Times board. And um, it used to be in his house in Chanhassen that he shared with Susanna Melvoin and lived there with Maite in the nineties and everything. And then they moved it into Paisley parks, studio B. And uh, he, I think just preferred that, you know, as pro tools was on the rise and people were doing these like more elaborate digital productions. He was like, no, I want to get like this really grimy, funky rock band. And I'm just going to make us record straight to tape so that you get the experience of just these, you know, four people in a room mm-hmm. rocking out and yeah. have that be the sound and not this other way more controlled environment of, you know, being able to punch in and, and do all of those things. Well, it, it, and it should be said, the man could play. So you didn't, uh, when, when you're, when yes. you're that, 
when you're that well versed in your in your instrument or every instrument in his case, tape's fine. Yeah, you just one take and it's good to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's a double album. Looks like it's going to be a double episode. Join us next time for part two of Tied to the Tracks, Sign of the Times. Mm-hmm.